Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. Hope you're closing up 2021 healthy and safe. If you're listening to this in 2022, I hope it's off to a smashing start. And you may be, maybe you saw the title of this. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to get into that. More pandemic-related stuff, virus things, etc. Well, if you're tired of it, imagine how tired someone who works in healthcare feels about it and not to guilt you into listening. I hope you enjoy listening because this is the idea uh, doing this is that um, first of all, my guest is a longtime friend. She's married to one of my closest friends, a gentleman you'll hear referred to throughout the podcast. Um, And so when you hear their name, Andy, that's my friend. And he and I and, an, and another friend of ours would, uh, we had like a group chat and we would, uh, from time to time, you know, be wondering how things were going or wh- how worried we should be or what, you know, measures to put in place, et cetera. And he was like, well, let me, let me ask Fiona. And she drafted this email that was so effective, so helpful. And if you want, I can copy and paste the text from it potentially and put it on the spacecave.com. And I feel like as much as we're all scouring uh, the internet for news and updates and how things are going, it is kind of nice to hear from people that are on the ground floor, that are working in hospitals and and dealing with the overflow and the dread and the precaution, etc. And so before we get started, I just want to reiterate that her views are her own. This could be preparing you as if it's going to be some thing that's going to cause you anxiety or dread. I hope that's not the case at all. It's a nice, civil, informative conversation. And that's how I reached out after reading that email. I was like, well, if anything I like to do in this world, it's communicate with very intelligent people. And hopefully they can shed some light on subjects, just illuminating subjects that the rest of us go, oh, that's interesting. But more so, maybe a subject that we all could take a thing away from. And if you already know these things, that's not surprising, but this might be a helpful way for you to gather some information and just get a little better at sharing it with other people. Those are some of the things that are challenging currently, the the difficult conversations of, well, where'd you hear that? How do you know that? How do you know that's true? This certainly doesn't put a final stamp that you have carte blanche in any of those conversations, but it might just be a helpful way for you to uh, hear what it's like from someone who's dealt with the pandemic pretty um, intimately or at least firsthand. 
Um, her views are her own, as I mentioned, and she's a certified safety professional with 15 years working in occupational safety and public health, mostly in the healthcare sector. She has a master's in environmental science with a focus in occupational safety, and she completed coursework for her doctorate in public health before emergency response made her pause before completing the degree. She started the pandemic working as the safety and emergency manager at a hospital in Denver, Colorado, before leaving to work for the Colorado Department of Public Health in the Office of Emergency Preparedness and Response. She supported hospital preparedness program grants and the statewide vaccination effort before transitioning to a role as the pandemic and special pathogen coordinator. So that's a cool title to be talking to or with, and I hope that you're excited about that as well. I'll read it again. The pandemic special pathogen coordinator. Come on, guys, this is who we should be talking to. You're, if you're getting your information from some person in their car with an outline of their sunglasses on their face and a, because they're, they're, the sun has scorched their skin everywhere around where the glasses go, but maybe the glasses are either backwards on their head or up on their forehead, I really feel like... It's, it's shocking that you're listening to this podcast because you get your information from a very unique source. However, if you have ventured over into different waters, welcome again, pandemic and special pathogen coordinator. And you'll hear what all of that entails in this episode. I hope you're excited. I hope this doesn't sound, again, I hope it doesn't sound like, oh, I'm so sick of uh, uh, pandemic stuff. I just want to get away from it all. This podcast is meant to be a nice little oasis and a break from it, but there's a there's a give and take with so many things in life and that if you ignore it so much, it might become overwhelming, such with climate change or things like that. So hopefully you're informing yourself, being active, trying to engage or change your habits or learn what you can do and what the future might look like with this latest variant. So that's what this aims to be, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. Whew, this is the longest preamble I've ever done. You, how many times have you hit forward 30 seconds so far? Still not there? Still me. Okay, guys, let's get into it. Here's part one with my friend, Fiona Gow. <laughs> I should I should always start recording just to capture this because I think looking back we'll all forget or remember it differently than like there's no singular sort of tech or setup that you know it would be kind of helpful if like okay everyone has this but because there's like 50 different manufacturers and competitive things that uh I've had it set up so many times where I'm like okay that that's got to be right and then it works for that particular thing. And then I set up to do it for something else and uh, nothing works. So then like the people on the, other, or it happens on here all the time where someone's like, sorry, it, it's different for work. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know how it goes. Uh, so we did it though. And it's, I think it sounds fine. Good. Yay. I'm happy to hear that. You sound fantastic on my end, but you have a very fancy mic. So I oh, would expect yeah. you to. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this whole setup. I've got a real, uh, like a re- I feel like I could record bands in here, presumably. <laughs> I don't have- maybe, may- maybe you would have some issues with like your tools falling off of your pegboard behind you. Yeah, but maybe they're like the perfect, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, the drums might shake the walls a little too much and then bring down the whole damn place. But I like the idea that uh, the walls are so – there's no real flat surface for them to hit off of. So maybe the hammer shape would catch sound in just a certain way and then – I don't know. Maybe, maybe. – <laughs> Maybe it would sound cool. Good. Um, anyway, it's good to see you. And that you cake too. looked amazing. And I'm <laughs> so excited to have this chat. I'm sorry I was a little bit late. I it, I got not sprung on me, but only like a couple hours ago that for uh, Emily Rose's parents, they wanted to do a Zoom gift opening thing. And I was like, I'm podcasting. And she was like, oh, crap. Well, what if we did 5 p.m.? And I was like, with grandparents? Like, what are the chances that goes by in 10 or 15 minutes or whatever? And, of course, it went a little. So I was, like, running out here with my laptop, and then I forgot the SD card for the recorder. And uh, so, anyway, I'm I'm a little late, but I think we're mostly, you know, close to being on schedule. You're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. I was late to a meeting that I set up like 20 minutes before the meeting today. And I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like how did I get that distracted in 20 minutes? <laughs> like, <laughs> person okay. is sending me, Hey Fiona, I'm in the meeting. Are you joining? <laughs> oh, I said, let's Three have a meeting. Ago. And then I took a bite of a sandwich and things got squirrely from there. <laughs> Yeah, I there's something weird. Like, I think um, when you work from home, there's a very different cadence to your day. And like, I don't want my computer making noise at me all the time. So I don't have all of those audible alerts on that I might have on a work computer that I like leave in my car to take home or like leave at work. Interesting. So it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I have um, two things that... Im- came to mind as you said that the first is going back to the time thing of being like, I have to be aware that I will lose track of time very quickly. So if like the microwave is going and it has a minute left, I'll be like, I should go run and grab that thing. And then I'll go, I'll have to talk to myself and like, whoop, whoop, just hold on a sec. It's one minute. I'll bet it can wait. And then I'm ready when the thing comes out of the microwave. I mean, it's not the end of the world if it's just sitting there in the microwave, but so often I've disappeared and then I come back and, you know, like I, it won't even be me. Like the someone else will open up the microwave or Emily Rose will and be like, did you put something in here? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that was like two hours ago. So I can't I have tell to be you how many times I have made coffee and not drunk the coffee. Like yeah. I have done that so many times. I'm like, I'm really lagging. I'm really struggling to pay attention. I desperately need a big, strong cup of coffee. <laughs> Well, I go upstairs and it's two hours later and it's like disgusting cooked coffee. <laughs> <laughs> is that a pandemic thing or a life thing? Is this everyone doing this now or is it because we're home more? The the um, time thing you meant or the second thing you mentioned definitely felt like a pandemic thing where I never have my phone on me. And then I I had it in my pocket today and I felt it buzz and I was like, Ugh, I can't believe we have accepted that where technology can bug you like poke you hey pay attention to me i just felt like you're near my skin don't buzz near my skin and and yet the last 10 or 15 years of our lives that's been so normal but now not having to have it yeah it was really weird i don't know if everyone else is dealing with that yeah i don't know i 
I have worked in an emergency response role long enough that I like feel like my phone is like more than six feet away from me. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> there could be a crisis that I have not yet been alerted to or notified of. What is that? No, give me the phone. It's not healthy. <laughs> but you voluntarily, like you pursued things in life to get yourself in this position to some degree. Right. I mean, everyone can look at their life and be like, yeah, how did that happen? But you palinkoed your way down to this spot. It, it Does it suit your mindset or your, your makeup where you're like, I kind of like things happening. I like having to be kind of juggling stuff all the time or deal, staying calm in the face of adversity. Yes. So um, I, I don't know if you know this. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD in my late 30s. I did um, not know that. Yeah. And literally, you know, listening to parenting podcasts and they're like, my kid does this. And I'm like, I, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was talking to my primary care physician and described my adulthood. And she's like, you need to go to a psychiatrist and get evaluated for ADHD. <laughs> because when you thrive in a crisis, it is a sign that you are someone who um, adrenaline makes your brain function like a normal person. <laughs> so like people who have ADHD tend to end up in roles in like emergency departments or EMS or emergency response, because when everyone else is like, the sky is falling, we're like, cool, the sky's falling, which means I need to do this, 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 and this in this order and set this is my priority and roll and delegate this. And I can ignore that we like apparently that's how normal people function all the time <laughs> i had no idea i don't know so yes i definitely ended up in this role because it was the part of my various aspects of my job that i was good at and then i was like let me make more of that for myself by like leaning into it um but do you have to kind of dis like people will go to a 5k or or something harder a, a triathlon or whatever it is Something they've entered into and they've paid, which is different here because you're it's a vocation, so you're being paid. But in theory, you've put yourself in a situation where they'll all be stretching and going, oh, gosh, can't believe we're doing this. And from afar, you're like, you paid to do this. You you drove yourself here. Why are you? And it's all kind of part of it. Like they like the, will I survive this? Are there going to be sharks out there in that water? Let's just start the swim and see how it goes. And then once they're, of course, when they're done, especially if they get like a medal or something, but even if not, I assume just the completion of a very complicated series of physical or mental endeavors, that has to feel pretty nice. It does. I mean, it, it feels good when you have a job that you feel like makes a difference. Um, so I like that. I've never been good at doing things that are boring. I mean, you, I hope I'm not telling tales, but you and I have the same undergraduate degree. Like you got a civil engineering degree. I got a civil engineering degree. When I was leaving my civil engineering degree program, I was like, there's nothing in the world that can make me want to design I-beams every day for the next 40 years. I can't do it. Um, I-beams properly designed are very useful. Um, and I, But I think it is the kind of thing that for me, having something that I liked doing and was looking forward to, and I like the crisis, I definitely lean into those things. Um, so yeah, I, I don't mind. It's fun. It's interesting. It, it's always different. <laughs> I think it, I guess it sort of surprised me that 
you could transition in such a way that you have uh, from like civil engineering, then there was a period where it felt like you were always doing something that was tangential to like petroleum related things, like being in Asia and being like, I think of you as like a safety supervisor or someone that was kind of monitoring like, all right, let's just make sure this isn't too harmful to our old pal Mother Earth. And that felt like, oh yeah, civil engineer, you could move into that world. But then being like, and I don't even know the true definition or the term for your current position. And I think of you as just like, at the time, like walking into a hospital and be like, no, that goes there. Stop that. What are you guys doing? Where do you store this? And just keeping everything on track so that people can manage a crisis. I think I'm way off, but that. <laughs> um, yeah, I wouldn't say that my career path has been like normal and formulaic. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody, when they look at my career path would go, this is a great path that absolutely will lead you to where you want to be in 40 years like you're gonna be great <laughs> it was very wonder winding and meandering um but yeah essentially I graduated college as the um Enron crisis was happening and the there were no jobs in civil engineering I'd wanted to do airport engineering um, that wasn't going to happen after 2001. It's like, okay, rethink <laughs> project <laughs> management. Um, the oil business was hiring. The oil business, because it's so dangerous, has a strong culture of safety, which was the first time I'd ever heard of that. Ended up in a safety role. Realized that to be competent at it, I needed more education. So I got more education, graduated in 2008. Another fantastic time to be graduating from a degree program <laughs> um, and ended up in the healthcare sector in like um, in academia. So it was part of the text, one of the hospitals and healthcare systems in the Texas Medical Center, which meandered my way into safety and emergency preparedness, tons of flood response, hurricane response, that type of work. And then ended up moving to Colorado and working in a hospital. So all of those weird sorts of things like, understanding how energy works and then working in safety and then doing lots of emergency response. It has all sort of pieced together so that when the pandemic hit, I was well situated to know a lot about personal protective equipment, different types of personal protective equipment, um, emergency response. It all kind of worked out. It really did. And in a way that I just think of kind of how we started talking about, yeah, I don't know how I got here. You know, people that have bunkers and they're kind of preparing for the end of days, but there there must be a part of them that's like, well, I, let's just hope it never comes. But if it does, I have everything I'll need. So then there's a small part of them that's like, I hope it does kind of happen so that I can see if this air purifier is as good as I think it's going to be, or if this water filtration is as good as I think it'll be. But then once it does start happening, you know, when you start hearing word of, oh, there's some cases in this place called Wuhan, China, you're like, huh, is everyone at the hospital kind of going, all right, let's just start thinking about our storm shelter, everyone. We know what's down there. We know how to operate it. But let's really, you're turning your attention toward that well ahead of time. Yeah. So we had all sorts of plans um, and all sorts of procedures and lots of protective equipment and regular checks of it. Um, it all went out the window very quickly. <laughs> um, 
Because um, it all depends on things functioning smoothly. And I'm, I'm going to throw some examples out there that maybe you know or don't know. But if you think back to some events in our history, like the SARS pandemic is thing is something that people our age kind of remember a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was good notification that there was this weird disease out there. And people were like, okay, we'll, we'll implement our plan. And we've got all this PPE on hand. Um, and we'll, we'll know exactly which people coming in need to be wearing masks and how to care for them. Um, this pandemic did not go like that. Like it, the, the weird asymptomatic phase and, and weird massive spread among probably people our age before it hit people who were getting super sick meant that the case definitions on the day one that someone walked into my hospital were just wrong. Like it, at that point, it, the first patient that tested positive in the hospital that I was working for, the case definition didn't apply to her. Um, so she didn't get tested. <laughs> <laughs> well, and even having tests to administer, were they kind not of Not like... even having tests. And, and in Colorado, we had some real struggles with the tests. They just didn't work right. There were some weird things going on. And, and that was not something I was really involved in at all. But waiting 10 days to figure out if someone had COVID, had the flu, (laughs) had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease um, and needed to be on the cardiac floor. And their symptoms were just, yeah, they cough a lot because they have lung disease. That was hard. (laughs) Like, do you put this person who's very vulnerable in with the COVID patients or do you put them in with the cardiac patients where they could really hurt them all? It, It was not what you would call an ideal situation. And I think the way things played out in New York with the nursing home patients and the way that all worked was a real public sign of how that really just didn't play out well. Oh, yeah. It it felt like it, maybe you're in a place like Colorado where there's not nearly as much international travel. You know, but luckily, not every major city in the United States gets the same level as New York does because it would have been pretty much I would guess the same in all of them. And that would have been way worse. So we could all see from afar and pretty quickly be like, this has to be happening because of this. And then now we're, we're in this phase, you know, maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but where it's everywhere so that it can, it can impact a rural community or a, you know, regular, I don't know, an average size town similarly, similarly to how it did in the beginning stages then, even though now we're prepared with more testing and more awareness of what the symptoms are, but you get these variants that you don't know right away. Oh, this one's different. This one, there is no loss of taste or smell. It's more, you get a sore throat. That's a new thing. It hasn't been that or whatever it would be that there's still going to be some lag. But when you mentioned the ADHD thing, it immediately made me think of this documentary called The Alpinist, which is on Netflix. And it's about a, I mean, everyone has at this point heard of probably Free Solo and think like that's the (laughs) craziest level that risk taking. And I think, you you know, you think of them as like adrenaline junkies, but the people behind it are just kind of like, yeah, I like climbing rocks. It's sort of like you were saying where like if the sky is falling and you have to kind of jump raindrop to raindrop and your mind can think quickly enough to do that, it's it's not necessarily adrenaline. It's like, oh, good. This guy in the Alpinist says the same thing where he's like, I having to critically focus on every single move, be totally in the present of everything I'm doing. It 
he calls it the squirrel brain. Like everything just shuts down and I'm like calm and focused. But wanting to be, like say you're on this, he climbs a, a waterfall that you can see from a side shot, it's detached from the rock wall. So he's just climbing a piece of frozen water that is not essentially like tethered to the mountain itself. And he's hanging off the side of it by like this little pick. It's terrifying to watch. It's just such a crazy thing. But then if you think wanting to be in that situation, knowing like, I know what to do here, as opposed to going, all right, just hang out there for like five days and we'll let you know if this ice is safe. That must have been, that's probably a long way to go for that analogy, but it had to have been similar feeling. Like, just let me know what ice we're on and we'll go. But just waiting there, terrifying. Yeah, it, it was terrifying. And there were so many scared people. They were scared for their patients who might be COVID patients. They were scared for their patients who weren't COVID patients because we didn't know anything really about this disease. We could make parallels to diseases like SARS and MERS, but they weren't perfect. You can explain it to similarly to the flu, except there are differences and you run into challenges when you make um, analogies to the flu because it is a different virus and people... People have a very interesting opinion of the flu that it's not scary, right? Like we don't <laughs> think of the flu as scary. We think of the flu as scary maybe in a really bad flu year where it's hitting kids really bad or it's really bad for old people. But socially, it's not something that people are like, oh, yeah, there's flu going around my office. I can't go into work. That's not nah. what people are doing when, when the flu is going around. <laughs> There's like, Joe's coughing. I bet he has the flu, that jerk. <laughs> I noticed it so much through the pandemic, the way people spoke about the flu shot with still a very, like an abscess or an absence of attachment to what that flu shot means to the rest of the population. Uh, I've never, I don't really get the flu, so I don't get the shot. Even post pandemic, even, but like, but you go into like a YMCA and huddle up with a bunch of old men and laugh in the sauna or something. Oh yeah, I do that no flu shot. Think of what that could potentially be doing, but there's not that attachment at this point. Even still, I still hear it from people like, no, I don't get the flu. I'm not going to get that shot. Or my personal favorite. Yeah. The flu shot makes me sick, so I don't get it. And it's like, it's not making you sick. It's training your immune system. It's like you're having a small immune response instead of getting the flu. Um, Andy got the flu two years ago. Um, not long after your bachelor party, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and it was awful. He was in bed for like a week and a half. He was <laughs> miserable. Um, oh, no. And yeah. The, I wonder if that was going around. Flu. I didn't hear from people after my big party, but. It was a long time. Like, it was, he, he didn't get it at your bachelor party. He he just got the flu. I should clarify that it was a birthday party, just so I don't get some texts. People like, oh. what? Why wasn't I invited? You're, you're married. Um, but yeah, that was oh, like sorry. 12 people <laughs> in a small enclosed space. The, the type of things that now you just dream about. And even if you're, maybe you're doing them now. Maybe, you know, people get together and they've got the at-home tests and they're vaccinated. And at some point there has to be a feel of, I've done all I can do. I'm staying away from old people. I don't have children. I don't have an autoimmune. I'm living. And I'll bet, you know, good for people that are doing that. At some point, you do have to kind of pull the cord and be like, I've been as safe as I can be without being in a room with other people dreading that I'm 
killing someone's entire family or harming myself or my family. But I don't know if it'll ever be quite the same. Do you feel that way? Like mindset, you're in a room, you're watching TV, you see people laughing and partying. You're like, guys, 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 everyone there vac- vaccinated? Come on now. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely pick and choose who I spend any time with at all very carefully. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like, <laughs> I barely trust my parents. I love them. <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> like my dad will tell a story about being at church and Bible study. And can you believe someone wouldn't wear a mask at Bible study? And I'm like, can you believe you would stay in a Bible study with someone who's not wearing a mask? (laughs) (laughs) How hard is it? It's Bible study. (laughs) Love thy neighbor. (laughs) He should just have a, like a button or something that he could just point to when someone's mask is well below their chin or something. "Mm -mm, Love thy neighbor. Here we go. But not have to say it. Just a little point. Um, going back to the to to the safety aspect of, you know, waiting the ten days, being prepared, and your so your job. Maybe the doctors are going. I don't have the tests. I mean, the symptoms seem like the flu. It's a head cold. I don't know, but they say they can't breathe. They can't smell or taste. We don't even know early on. Are these even symptoms of this new thing that's supposedly coming over here? What what is your position to try to like? Are you on the phone figuring out like, oh? trash bags that's our best bet we there's not enough supply as it is to even get ahead of this how are you processing that feeling oh that's that's a complicated question so my role is really holy moly there's stuff going on facilitate communication try and understand what's going on so that the decision makers in the hospital have the right information and can use it effectively to make sure their patients are well cared for and the staff are also protected um, and facilitate information flow up to the corporate folks and back down from the corporate folks. We did a lot of really just facilitating situational awareness and communication um, and training people and making sure that people were using the protective gear appropriately because protective equipment does work. It's what has kept nurses and doctors in hospitals and respiratory therapists um, from getting sick and dying of COVID. Um, The other thing that we did a lot of was making sure that those actions were actually implemented. So spot checking them, making sure we had experts who were keeping an eye on things. Um, One of the things lots of people don't realize about a hospital is that there's a massive group of people who may work at four hospitals that have different processes and different protective equipment. So we would have someone come in who's the house supervisor who flexes into our hospital once every three weeks. And they got some information at the other hospital that they work at most of the time. And then they're trying to direct what's going on at our hospital that doesn't work because simple things like the way the airflow works in a CAT scan room is different in our hospital than in that hospital. So the rules are different. It's hard to adjust on the fly for a 12 hour shift when you're the person in charge. Um, So really facilitating that, making sure the communication was as good as possible. Um, I feel like I'm missing something really important. It seems so long ago. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But also we were keeping track of patients where they were making sure our staff were we had the right staff in the right places um to to provide the care 
making sure they felt reassured that they were going to be safe. So having communications with them. Um, I think back to um, Dr. Fauci standing next to President Trump uh, in, you know, saying like, you need to be wearing N95s. Nurses in the hospitals need to be wearing N95s. And our hospital is what's called a PAPR-only facility. PAPRs are a different type of protective equipment that also are respirators that protect your airway from viral disease. But when someone is watching the news and they're hearing from the two, the nation's two leading experts, you need to be wearing N95s and we're telling them you don't get an N95, that's not going to feel good to them, right? <laughs> so you need to, you need to um, have the time to listen to people and, and understand their questions, communicate about them, give them opportunities to, to spot check what you're saying. Because I have expertise in respirators, but a nurse who has to do IV draws in various units of the hospital and is older and is worried about her own health, she doesn't have that expertise. She relies on us and from what's being said. So you need to listen, you need to understand, you need to provide good, clear, correct information and let them spot check you. You, you, They don't need to trust me. You know, they need to, hey, look, go look this up in OSHA's regulations. It'll explain the difference between the two and what these two things do. And and PAPRs and N95s do provide the same level of protection for your lungs so you don't get exposed. And in fact, they may be better because they also provide splash protection and they have a different protective factor that's actually better than an N95. N95s are great. (laughs) (laughs) They are the appropriate level um, for this type of situation. But a PAPR is sort of a step above. But Donald Trump and Dr. Fauci weren't talking about PAPRs because it's a smaller sector of the same level of care. So trying to keep track of information, keep track of everything that's changing so that like the chief medical officer and the hospital executives can make informed decisions and inform all of the people who need to be actually doing the care. Yeah, I was going to say with um, information and what you know and how you adapt to it, you mentioned like, you know, I know about filtration, let's say, and I would guess there's kind of a bedrock starting point for hospital safety. They're always, you know, a significant portion from what I've heard of hospital, like malpractice suits stems from infection, you know, post-surgery sort of staff, things like this. So keeping people out of the room or protected if they can. And not all hospitals do that. Some, like there's one here that makes a ton of money and they'd rather just like, well, just pay whatever this settlement's going to be there. You see some of the other ones that are maybe a little on the, uh, the lower side financially that would maybe have gloves outside for visitors, you know, per, per room. Hey, throw this smock on you. Stuff that you see like, oh, that's smart. Yeah, what, like the doctors and nurses wear it and then you just come in, I just got back from McDonald's. Can I, can I lean over him? Can I talk into his ear? And so you have to know the, you know, the masks, the, the safety of just how do we keep this clean and efficient and we keep the right supplies? But I'm wondering, you know, p- humans are, are told stay in, stay in. And everyone has their own set of like, this is what I think. And you guys in the beginning probably were similar in going, well, we know about virology. We know about what a normal virus is supposed to do. Is this one on trees and plants? Is it staying on the ground so that if I walk outside, is it attaching to the bottoms of my shoes? So if I say stretch when I'm at home, 
just stay at home. Everyone stay at home. And you're like, I can't go walk around in a park. So some part of your common sense is like, I think I can do all this stuff. There's no virus that's like a swarm of bees just floating in the air. But you, when you don't know 100%, you have to kind of behave that way. And that seemed to be very hard for a lot of people because they, ah, my common sense. And I think that we've seen in this, a lot of people's common sense and the spectrum that uh, contains all of it uh, is is vast. So how do you guys, when you're having these meetings and someone goes, I, I think we can do this, how do you manage that? Because that must happen all the way up at your level. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> um, it's really interesting because I think one of the things that most hospital safety folks and hospital emergency preparedness folks lived with through this is this is something that we live with and we talk about. We talk about pandemic flu. We talk about um respiratory illnesses. We talk about anthrax exposures and how we might respond and these these crises and and we have all of these plans that um we're legally required to have and have plans in place and know how to implement them and and train on them. But it's something that we live with, you know, eight to five, Monday to Friday, and probably more for your typical hospital safety emergency preparedness folks. Um, but the folks who run hospitals there and run hospital systems and healthcare systems, they are thinking about how do we hire doctors? How do we keep doctors? How do we keep our finances under control? They don't live in this world of pandemic preparedness or crisis management. So they were making a lot of decisions about things um, without the knowledge base that folks in my role had. And there were definite times that that was a struggle. Um, they were definitely making those decisions with the best of intentions. I'm not saying that they weren't. It's just, I mean, the people who were making decisions in the hospital system I was working with, I've never met most of them, right? Like they probably don't know the names of any of the hospitals. We're so many levels below. <laughs> <laughs> um and different people in, in roles like mine have different levels between them and the hospital executive leadership. Um, they, they have different levels of trust with their hospital leadership. So different people were set up for different amounts of success in their response because they were either more or less connected, even if they had the right information. And then different hospitals, like if I think of a small critical access hospital, um, picture like maybe a 15 to 20 bed hospital in a really small town in um, rural Colorado. Um, this hospital doesn't have a dedicated safety and emergency preparedness person. They probably have a single person quality department that does, um, you know, quality management, infection prevention, um, regulatory control. Um, they're doing all of that. So the amount of expertise that they have is, it's not necessarily less. Maybe they've been doing it for 40 years and they know a lot, but they have a lot of things that they have to stay on top of. Um, and it's harder when it's a piece of your job as opposed to your entire job. So that can be a struggle too. And I think it led to some challenging decisions that worked really well in some places and were a struggle in other places. Um, I think my hospital fared really well. Um, we were fortunate. I had a really talented occupational health nurse who, when one of those weird decisions came down from someone who didn't understand 
the difference between our pappers and another hospital's pappers told us to stop using them. And we're like, but they're the best protection we can provide. <laughs> and I pretty much got told like, Fiona, this is coming down from executive leadership. We have to do it. We can switch to N95s. It'll be fine. We'll figure it out. And the AUK health nurse went like, stop it. This is, this is unnecessary. She had different leadership structure and was able to take that and, and allow us to stick with what we were doing, which I'm so grateful for. Um, and I think that's one of the really interesting things about any emergency is that people step up and they do great things and they stand up for people's well-being. And that's a really wonderful thing. And you never know exactly who that person is going to be who's just going to stand up to you know, a hospital system executive leadership and be like, that's not reasonable. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that people are willing to do that. And um I will always admire the person who did that. She's a hero. That's so definitely great. made my life easier. <laughs> yeah. Good for her that one that she had the uh, capacity to do it and have it mean something, but two, like the, the courage to do it, you know, to put her neck out like that, because I'm sure there are a lot of people that went, I'm tired. And on top of everything, I just don't want to get yelled at or, or I don't want to do the wrong thing. Maybe I'm wrong. And, you know, the pe- like in, so living here in Los Angeles, they always say you get fired for saying yes, not for saying no. So you greenlight a project, it does terribly, everyone turns their eyes back to that person, that one person. But it was so many people, the acting was terrible, the writing was terrible, the directing, the lighting, the, it just goes on and on. Like having one person say, we're doing this or we are not doing this, and it's swinging the turnstile where not that you made a hit, but you avoided a disaster that saying no there would have been. That feels great. Yeah, she's she's amazing. And there are countless examples of things like that all over the country in the healthcare space. Um, but to answer the other part of your question about the COVID on the shoes and walking around and stuff, yeah, I probably felt a lot more comfortable not wearing gloves in the grocery store because of my knowledge, right? So I know enough about the cold virus to know that it's not a durable virus, right? So there are viruses like hepatitis B. Hepatitis B, if it lives on a surface, it can, sorry, it doesn't live. It's a virus. It <laughs> survives on a surface. It can survive for 40 days and be a viable, viable virus to infect someone if they have the right exposure to then that small spot of dried blood with hepatitis B virus in it for 40 days. Yeah. Um, there are no coronaviruses that are known to have that kind of durability, which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. we, I'm very happy about that. We're hearing stuff, <laughs> but remember in the beginning, like they found it, the cruise ship hasn't had people on it for 17 days and they found droplets. And then everyone took that as like a baseline. Okay, well, heads up when you're in the grocery store, they should be wiping it down after every customer and wash your fruit and all this stuff that was not only accepted, but widely spread and when Fauci would be on TV and he would say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still a doctor. I'm, I try to get my information from the ground floor. You could kind of imagine him, you know, thanks everybody ending that press conference and popping over into a hospital and just walking the floors and chatting with people. But like what you said, all hospitals being different, you know, I had to use an iPad recently. The camera's a mirror thing, so it's not intuitive. You know, you move it to the left and it's backwards. And I, imagine doing that all day and and having to do it rapidly 
with heavy pressure on you. You go, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm new at this. And then the next hospital is using a different lens structure. But we all took it as like, well, this one guy's going into one hospital. All hospitals are the same. And it was as if he was going in there and people were going, kids can get it. And then they'd run out and go, children can get it. And we'd go, oh, no. And then they'd run back in the hospital and be like, it's it's worse for old people. And this is happening. And people that have this can't really die from it. And they'd run out and tell us. And we'd go, ah. Oh. And then they'd run back in and go, this one guy that should have not died did die. And then all of a sudden, we're just like so confused. Like every day is a new thing at this damn one hospital. But that was such a poor way to distribute information that was happening in thousands of hospitals. Yeah, I actually have been thinking a lot about the media response to this because there were so many things about how information was shared that I think have led to some of the challenges that we deal with today. And I'll throw out an, throw out an example. Um, California and New York were hit really hard, really fast, right? Tons of cases. They shut down schools pretty early um, because they were like, man, things are out of control. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how to handle this disease. Our hospitals are full. We need to stop what's going on, stop transmission, do as much as we can to stop transmission. And around the country, there were tons of these like enormous shutdowns, right? Um, Colorado was hit hard in places like Aspen, Vail, and Denver, and Colorado Springs. The small towns that weren't ski centers, like places that people don't travel to, they also had to deal with the school shutdown in these tiny rural school districts that don't have enough teachers, enough funds. They don't have computers. Their students don't have broadband internet to do Zoom school, right? Yeah. So, But they had three months of Zoom school as well. And the school districts then when they were sort of tasked with figuring out the next year were like, well, nobody in our entire town got sick. This is all a hoax. Because from their experience, it was all negative, all how on earth do we educate kids with no infrastructure to do it (laughs) (laughs) when there's no disease in our community. But the messaging to that community was not localized and really specific about, hey, we you guys are okay as long as you don't all like go party in steamboat on on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Not that they would or or that they, they should, but I don't think we managed the localized communication. And it's one of those challenges of not having as strong of a local news infrastructure as we used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it has had some of those impacts that lead people to not believe what they're hearing because it doesn't reflect what they see every day in their communities. Yeah. And for people that did stay away from people, not travel, not get it. I wonder how many of them were able to just power through and be like, it didn't even happen to me. Like, not that it was a hoax or otherwise, but nothing changed for us because we live out here away from people. And so likely if they live that way, and I think this was kind of a, um, an incorrect assumption that people had, which is that like, oh, people that live like that are detached. But a lot of times they're on social media and that's how they communicate with their friends and family. So they're developing some bizarre reactions to it that weren't just like, well, I got wood to chop. I'll be outside. It was, well, the wood's chopped and now it's nighttime. And I'm, I'm reading this fascinating article about, and, you know, so the misinformation 
push was fascinating and how it touched all those places. But you can see where it translated or it originated perhaps from a from something that made complete sense, why they would be inherently skeptical is that no one here is coughing. Everyone here has just like the regular cold, if that. It's a small community that wasn't, they weren't hanging out at uh, LaGuardia or something like that. Yeah, there's um, there's a few things that I haven't heard talked about extensively in the public response to this. And one of them is theories that are known in the public health world to create behavior change about health stuff. Um, and there, there's one that is one of my personal favorites. And it's the concept that if you know somebody who has had a certain illness or injury, um, you are much more likely to take that illness or injury seriously, but you have to like know them personally. It has to be someone that you care about. Even if it's somebody that you hate, it has to be someone that you have like a personal relationship to. So this is part of, um, I think it's called the health belief model of behavior change. And I think one of the things that we have witnessed is that there were all these people who were forcing them to make changes, like mandated changes, mandated changes that I personally support and (laughs) think were good changes, but for them were only negative and they knew nobody who had the disease. They don't have the, the support that people who are making the decisions in New York or, or in LA or in DC who are like, man, this is hitting my family. It's hitting our community. We're seeing it in our hospitals. These are people whose judgment I respect. They weren't having that experience of like, this is a big deal because it's affecting this person I know. So they're having it affect them in just the negative way, but without the supporting evidence of like, I care about this because someone I, I know is sick. Yeah. Um, So that's one piece that I think is just really interesting. The second piece is that in safety, you rely a lot on concepts of adult education, which are different than how we deal with educating children. Um, When I educate Owen about something, I'm starting from a foundation of nothing. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) He'll ask me a question about something and I don't have to build on the framework of information that he has developed over the course of his life. He's only, mostly I know what he's been exposed to. (laughs) Um, But with adults, they have a starting point that may be very different than your starting point or my starting point. And if you don't respect that starting point as a place that you need to begin in this adult education, you're probably not going to reach them effectively. And I think that has been a piece that has been really missing because especially as the pandemic has gone past, people's starting points has changed dramatically, right? So if I'm someone who lives in a rural town in Colorado who doesn't know anyone who got sick and just thinks it's a problem for those big city folks in Denver who I don't care about and don't like, and I don't want them coming to my community, maybe they do like us, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But if that's their experience, um, and they have spent the past year and a half reading media that says this is a hoax and the vaccines are not great and they don't work and the masks don't work if that's what they have been hearing as a drumbeat for the past year and a half then just going and saying no now you really need the vaccine it's not going to be effective (laughs) they just (laughs) think you're dumb (laughs) they have a year and a half's worth of pandemic experience that says no i don't um (laughs) i haven't needed it yet why would i need it now yeah um and we haven't 
I haven't seen that in play in large scale media communications. You compare that to things like victory gardens in World War II. I don't have a green thumb. No one's going to ask me to grow tomatoes and, and expect me to be successful normally. But if I think like my entire country's well-being is dependent on me growing tomatoes, <laughs> I'm probably going to care a lot more about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we, we had these enormous campaigns that put efforts into perspective and tied them to things that people do care about, making those connections to personal experience that they could have um, care about. And I, I do think because of things like the draft, everybody had someone in World War II that they cared about that was affected dramatically by um, the effort. So it's a different thing and mm. I respect that. But I do think we are not using known techniques that work really well to create behavior change from a health perspective as effectively as we could. I wish we were doing more of that and better. And I don't think we're doing adult education terribly well, partly because I think we're outsourcing a lot of it to like news organizations that like clicks <laughs> and viewers. And, and how much of it is, you know, if that would be like an unanswerable or um, there'll be books and books and books written on it and they themselves become it's own, their own sort of white noise, even if they make complete sense to you. Well, something else makes complete sense to someone else. Like you might enjoy a book that is, we're citing this study, this specific study, and it found that X number of people that we polled found that they got their data from this, and you'd go, that checks out. They can cite a study. They can say they've polled 10,000 people. Aha. But that just is a thing that is a conduit into your brain. Other people are getting the same thing. And it, it seems such a gray area in that, one, we're a country where we like to dominate at the Olympics, both summer and winter. We really want to see the medal count go up. And mostly when people do that, they say, believe in yourself. So America has this thing of believe in yourself. It doesn't matter how you did in school. It does you. Once you get some common sense, you can lock in on you start to really believe in it. And like, I don't like people telling me how I feel. I don't like other people making me feel dumb. And we educate our kids, hopefully. I mean, there's going to be a whole change now, whether it's Zoom stuff or homeschooling, where now a whole generation of children is going to be brought up with what their parents thought made the most sense to them. Whereas if you can be shown this chemical and this chemical, this one's volatile, this one when I add it to this one, a flame will appear and the color of the flame will be this. And a kid will be skeptical and no way, they're just sitting there. And then you do it, that kid's brain is really putting a lot of things together. They're trusting you. They're believing it. They're, do, do that again. That was a trick. That was magic. Nope, you can do it yourself. Then they pour it in. <laughs> There's a flame. <gasps> Learning is happening. But then life starts happening in commercials where like our toothpaste gets in there and we have graphic design that shows a bunch of shit that doesn't happen. And they go, yeah, you have like 50 cavities. What? The commercial <laughs> told me. It's very detailed. Showed me the same ones that we're using to show how this virus attaches itself to your body or spike proteins. or, And then politicians, they start being told like they're the bad guy. People can get into politics and go, politicians, they're the bad ones. And still people will listen and go, this guy makes good points. He's right. He's so no matter what the politicians are saying, even though 50% of them are people that I'm somehow very attached to, 
that's a tough recipe to get people critically thinking, to be able to say, I know Olympians should believe in themselves, but I'm going to, let's just step back. Let's as a country just step back. And I know virtually nothing about the politics or the general health of South Korea. And I don't even know if this story is true, but there were these little care packages in the beginning that were essentially like, here's a mask, here's some hand sanitizer. We don't really know a lot about this yet, but if you don't have to go out, don't. And if you get something delivered, use this hand sanitizer. And then at the bottom it said, go Korea. So there's still this like team element that we desperately need here, but also like a, just chill out for a sec. We don't know what's happening. Don't guess, don't start spouting off all the information you think you know, just chill out. If we could have adult educated that kind of mindset, whew, what a different world. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that has created a lot of weird backlash has been the, I need to make sure everybody believes that I know what I'm talking about. And so people made a lot of very strong statements early in the pandemic that proved to be untrue as we gained more information. Part of that is because most medicine is, we have this disease, we're treating it this way, and that's how we're doing it. And novel viruses are not like that. (laughs) It's just not how it works. Um, And most doctors don't work in that space. Most doctors work in the, we test someone for these symptoms, and then we rule out these diseases, and then we're fairly certain it's measles, and so we give them this treatment, and then we treat the measles, and it's great. Um, And that's, that's just not how novel viruses work. And I think we've sort of seen that cause people to lose trust in some of our medical leadership and that they might have not lost if people had been a little more, we don't know everything. Go USA. We're figuring this out together. Yeah. Right. Like that little go Korea. (laughs) (laughs) I like it so much that it was just like, on one hand, kind of a surrender, which we really needed. And that's just not in our makeup to just surrender temporarily. Hey, let's just bunker in let all these bombs go off and then we can figure out at least where they're coming from, what type of bombs they are. Let's just listen and observe and then we can go fight this enemy. But to just run out and everyone running in different directions, terrified, just shooting guns in the air, kind of felt like how we attacked it. And it's it was embarrassing how we were. If it was in Olympics, we did poorly in the medal count. We did so poorly. <laughs> um. I would get in trouble by talking about it, but I think there are some very good reasons why that happened that um, might have to do with some of the previous administration's approaches. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to get you in any hot water and I'll make. But I think we should take a little break if you're okay with that. And then I want to get into Omicron and how we can avoid some of these pitfalls going forward and how worried people should be, et cetera, if you're cool with that. Yep. Sounds good. What'd you think? So smart. So fun to chat with. We've been friends for a long time, but I mean, when you're pals, you you come into town and then we have a a dinner or some sort of a um, communal event where it's a bunch of our friends. And so it's nice every now and again to peel away and just get some one-on-one time with someone who's so smart. And I think handling the pandemic as a whole very, um, in a very inspiring way, painting, finding ways to take your mind off of things, staying busy. That's what we're all doing. We're all trying to navigate this without letting the gloom of things burden us or overwhelm us. And I think knowledge is helpful in that. And we get into part two 
about specifically more so the Omicron or Omicron, depending how you say it. What, what language are you speaking? Is it originated from? I say Omicron. I think we said that. You'll just have to live with that. If you're someone that leans over and shushes people and goes, actually, it's Omicron. I apologize, but we get into that. And I think it's a good way to start 2022 on a positive note, looking forward, feeling confident, knowing um, as much as we can know about it. So come back for that. Um, and it'll be out in a couple of days. We'll get we'll be back nearly on a regular schedule. Got a little jostled during the holidays, but this one is the second one this week. The next one will come out in a short span as well. We'll get right to part two and get 2022 off uh, in a in a more regimented way with at least this podcast. Something you can hopefully lean on to be on schedule. Okay. Uh, there's Patreon, there's thespacecave.com. If you have questions, comments, guests, suggestions, want to support the show, rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that standard podcast stuff, thespacecave.com. There's um, a Twitter and a Facebook and an Instagram page now. You can follow this show in so many ways. Thank you for listening. This is a song, has 2 million views on YouTube, and yet it took me forever to find it. I heard it once, I had all these search terms that I would try to locate it. I couldn't. And finally, the other day, watching a space movie, they said some terms where I was like, oh, and we Googled them. And sure enough, the song finally turned up and lo and behold, 2 million views. So that's how hard it is these days to find stuff. The fact that you found this little sort of obscure podcast, bless your heart. But I think this is a good song to, to finish 2021 with, to launch into 2022. Space, this is a public domain kind of usage with NASA actual astronaut recordings and put over a beat that should inspire you, get you excited, stay healthy, stay engaged, stay funky. Have a good 2022. This song is from Public Service Broadcasting. It's called Go. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. This is Apollo Control at 102 hours into the flight of Apollo 11. It's grown quite quiet here at Mission Control. A few moments ago, Flight Director Gene Kranz uh, requested that everyone sit down, get prepared for events that are coming. And he closed with the remark, good luck to all of you. minutes now until ignition for power descent. Everything's still looking very good at this point. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for power descent. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guide, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. Jinsey, go. Econ, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for power descent. We're off to a good start. Play it cool. Okay, I'll flight controllers. I'm going around the horn. Okay, retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Falcom. Go. G. 
GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Kaiser. Go. Patrol. Go. Falcon. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Okay, everybody, let's hang tight and look for landing radar. 